All right. Thanks, guys. I'm tempted to say, all right, all right, all right, after, uh, never mind, Jen interviewed Matthew McConaughey this week. That was important news in Austin, Texas, believe it or not. So there you have that. So good morning, Austin New Church. It's always good to be here. Um, we have some special guests in the room. The Friels are here today. I wish you could see. All the pressure of worship is on two poor souls in the room. <laughs> it's great to be here. We have a, a, I have a treat for you today, and I want to introduce her properly because not everyone um, uh, is in the building in our crowd, and many of you have found us since we have not been doing open services, and so you may not know who Esha Regendron is, and so a couple of different things about her. Um, some things that, that, that are important, and you'll hear this in her voice, and you'll see, I think, pretty immediately why her voice matters in this house. She's a civil rights lawyer. That's what she does for a living. She also led ANC through um, the board nominations last round, which were the first of that kind now that we're organized under the United Methodist sort of polity and book of discipline. And she, she led that like a boss in which I think of our five new board members, four were people of color, I think. And that was something that mattered to us. And so her uh, oversight and her, her helping us make that happen was, has a lasting impact on who we are as a people. Uh, and so she also serves on the Preacher's Guild, and it, sometimes it's important to remind everybody what that is too. Uh, a couple years ago, we decided that our voice here would not be univocal anymore, that we would be editable. My favorite new word, it's actually not a word, but I love it, that we would push the voice of this house and the message of this house through multiple eyes and multiple ears and hearts. And so she serves in that space as well. I remember a time when Esha said, I don't know if I have the chops to preach. Well, you get to see that today for yourself. Uh, so prepare your hearts. Esha Rajendran is going to bring us the word. We're in the middle of a series uh, on First and Second Samuel where we are tracing sort of the foundations of leadership, specifically leadership when power dynamics are at play and what do the people of God have to be able to affirm to say, this is truth and this is not. And so Esha is going to speak to us today from First Samuel 8. So Join us in just a second for that. All right. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you've been following along with us the last few weeks, you know we're looking at First and Second Samuel. We started with how God disturbed the human power arrangements of the time by seeing and blessing Hannah with a son, Samuel. Then we saw how God disturbed human power arrangements again by bypassing Eli and calling and speaking directly to Samuel when he was a child. And now in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see a new shift in human power arrangements, but this time it's instigated not by God, but by humans. Samuel served Israel as a judge his entire life. The judges in the Old Testament weren't exactly rulers over Israel or legal judges as we might understand them. They were typically military leaders who also sometimes acted as prophets, conveying messages from God to the people. Political organization in Israel at the time was pretty decentralized with a more village-based agricultural society. There was local and regional leadership and judges, including Samuel, traveled throughout these regions on circuit years to different parts of Israel. But now Samuel's in his old age, so he's made his sons judges over Israel but we quickly learned that his sons are not like him. They took bribes, they perverted justice, and the people are not happy with Samuel's sons as judges. So the elders of Israel get together and they go to Samuel and they tell him that his sons are no good 
and they want a king to govern them instead. This should strike us as a little strange. The elders of Israel are upset that Samuel's two sons are abusing their power. So their solution to this abuse of power is to ask for one person to be put in charge and to give that one person even more power. How does that make any sense? Who exactly are these elders of Israel and why are they asking for a king? The elders likely had some standing, some power and influence in society. Some scholars suggest that they were those who had accumulated surplus wealth and they wanted a strong centralized government and a strong military to protect and enhance that surplus. The elders tell Samuel they want a king so they can be like the other nations. Samuel conveys this message to God, and God tells him that by choosing a king, the elders are not rejecting Samuel, but they are rejecting God. And then God tells Samuel to convey a warning about the ways of the king who will rule over them. And it's quite a warning, turning to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Why does God say that asking for a king is a rejection of God? It's because the ways of a king as laid out in this warning run counter to the ways of governance God set out when he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. The Jubilee and Sabbath year proclamations found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy say that every seven years and every 50 in the case of Jubilee, Accumulated debt was to be forgiven. Land lost through indebtedness was to be returned to the original owners, and those who had been forced into servitude through poverty were to be released. Lee Griffith, in his book, The Fall of the Prison, describes the Jubilee and Sabbath year proclamations as God's encouragement for people to say to one another, let us start anew. Because all of our deciding about who should have ownership and who should not, who should have freedom and who should not, is sinful and divisive. So let us return to the equality we share in standing before God, who owns all and frees us all. And though scholars debate how closely Israel actually adhered to the Jubilee and Sabbath year proclamations, these proclamations express God's desire for equality among his people an economic system where debt is forgiven regularly, preventing long-term generational poverty and severe social stratification. So when we understand this context, we see that by asking for a king, the elders of Israel are not just asking for a political reorganization of society, but an economic one as well. It's not just a move from ancient local governance to organized, centralized political power, but it's also the accumulation 
and centralization of capital and labor. It's a significant shift of power and who holds it, but it's also a significant shift of wealth and who holds it. In the warning from God, we see a cemented hierarchy of social class, and God warns that this king will take and take and take. He will take from those at the bottom of the social hierarchy and give to those at the top. God warns of a king who takes land from farmers, who takes a percentage of what those farmers produce and gives it to his military officers and royal courtiers, who takes sons into military service and daughters to serve the court. He takes the best of the livestock and he takes flocks from shepherds. This is a stark contrast to the vision articulated in the Jubilee and Sabbath year proclamations. The last time the Israelites lived under a king, it was Pharaoh. And it seems like God is trying to remind them of that when he warns the people that if they choose a king, it will lead to destructive inequality. He warns them that it will lead to them becoming the king's slaves. By asking for a king, the elders of Israel are forsaking the God-given Jubilee laws in favor of centralized power and capital, in favor of economic and military security. What does it mean when they say they wish to be like the other nations? It means, as Walter Brueggemann puts it, that they wish to be like the other nations in surplus, in taxation, in militarism, in oppression. He points out that the elders were likely an economic group who stood to benefit from the new institution and that the ones who are most vulnerable to the new economic and political arrangements are not present in this discussion, but they are the ones who will suffer the most. So though God warns that this specific centralization of political power, this monarchy will lead to economic oppression, oppression of labor, and oppression of the vulnerable, the elders of Israel respond to the warning by still wanting a king, by still wanting their own pharaoh. Now, we can't read ourselves directly into this text. The United States is not ancient Israel, our culture is not the same, our era is not the same, and our political system is definitely not the same. But what we see in the text are people struggling with leaders who abuse the power they were given, who see people attracted to a system of governance that benefits them. We see that they would like this political system that gives them greater economic gain and financial and physical security, even though it will come at a high cost to others. Can't we relate to that, even just a little? Many of us would agree that our faith informs our political engagement at some level. But these discussions are often limited to policies that affect social issues. And social policy is important. Incredibly so, but we can't divorce the social from the economic. Here we see a God who cares about the way human power arrangements are set up. And that includes not just the social conditions of his people, but the economic conditions as well. He cares about the way these systems are structured and how they can lead to oppression. We sometimes think of the economy or economic policies as amoral considerations neither inherently moral nor immoral. But as D.L. Mayfield points out in her book, The Myth of the American Dream, much of the Bible is concerned with wealth and economics, pointing out how a huge gap between the wealthy and the poor is an indicator of the lack of shalom in society. Can't we see that lack of shalom in our society? 
it's almost too obvious and overwhelming. The Global Social Mobility Index tracks social mobility in 82 different countries. Referring back to Jessica's chart from a few weeks ago, it tracks the ability of those who are more constrained in society to achieve greater mobility and experience fewer constraints. It particularly tracks intergenerational social mobility, movement in relation to the socioeconomic circumstances of one's parents. The United States, the richest country in the world with more wealth than any other country on that list, doesn't rank in the top 10 or even in the top 20 countries in terms of social mobility, but at 27. And that shouldn't surprise us. We have systemic structures that keep the poor in poverty. Just as one example, almost every US state uses a cash bail system, which requires that people pay to secure their release from jail prior to trial. So across the country, almost half a million people who are presumed innocent, who have not had a trial, are sitting in jail because they cannot afford bail. Beyond the great injustice of pre-trial incarceration itself, cash bail systems punish the poor simply for being poor. People who can afford bail are allowed to return to their homes, to their jobs, to their families as they await trial. And people who are poor cannot and are forced to remain in jail, leading to loss of jobs, disruption of childcare, inability to pay rent, and deeper poverty. Even when the charges are eventually dropped or if they're found not guilty, their lives have been disrupted irreparably. They have been incarcerated simply for being too poor to afford bail, and they now have to cope with further debt and instability. And when we consider which communities are over-policed and who is more likely to experience incarceration in our country, we see how racial justice and economic justice are incredibly intertwined. We see how labor is exploited. The federal minimum wage has not been raised in 10 years, not even adjusted to keep up with inflation. So workers earning the federal minimum wage today have $6,800 less per year to spend on food, rent, and other essentials than their counterparts just 50 years ago. We see how undocumented workers are especially vulnerable to exploitation as they are underpaid and subjected to unsafe worker conditions and threatened with deportation if they complain. And even the standard by which we measure poverty in the United States is incredibly outdated, resulting in a poverty line that's artificially low and not reflective of the reality of poverty in this country. Because the federal poverty line is used to determine eligibility for all types of welfare programs, this means that many families are not receiving important federal, state, and local aid, including food stamps, Medicaid, and temporary assistance for needy families, also called TANF. We watch where and how public money is spent, where it is invested and where it is not, which school districts receive funding and which do not. We see who receives bailouts and who does not, whose debts get forgiven and whose do not, who pays their fair share of taxes and who does not. How different is this system from the ways of the king God warned Israel about? A system that takes and takes and takes from those at the bottom of the social hierarchy to benefit those at the top? How can we reorient our values and resist these economic systems that prioritize the powerful at the expense of the poor, that lead to greater inequality, social stratification, and generational poverty? It'll require us to examine the systems that govern us with a new lens. It'll require that we peer past the myth of an economy that works for all 
past the myth that economic policies are neutral and amoral and realize that the dull economic policies we often ignore are preventing us from experiencing shalom with one another. This text reminds us that economic systems that exploit the poor are as old as time. And these cycles of exploitation will repeat themselves if we don't stop and confront them. This text also reveals God's heart. We see that God cares about the suffering of the poor. We see him intimately involved with and concerned about the economic systems that create that suffering. And that is such good news. We have a God who cares not just about the state of our souls, but the state of our bodies, who cares about our experience on this earth, who sees those suffering from injustice and exploitation and does not remain neutral, but sides with the poor, the oppressed, and the exploited. God cares deeply about the political and economic systems that govern his people, the way these systems are set up and the ways they harm the vulnerable. So whether we are in a political season or not, we should be thinking about the ways our society organizes power for some at the expense of others. And we'll see as we continue in First and Second Samuel what it looks like to challenge the ways of a king and to speak prophetically against these abuses of power and against inequality and injustice. Thank you, Esha. I don't know about you, but my imagination for what the body of Christ can be continues to be stretched. Um, there was a moment this week where my wife and I stood in the upstairs art gallery of Kitty Howell out in Bastrop, and we talked about the role of the painter in church. And the artists bring their gifts to bear, and they always have. My question to you is, what is the role of the legal mind in the pulpit? I think we just saw something beautiful. Esha, thank you for your gift to us. Thank you for, for allowing us to understand the public bail system through 1 Samuel. Now, that wouldn't have occurred to me. That occurs to Esha, and that matters. And so her voice matters. And I hope that you can see that this little house uh, is, is straining itself to loose all voices and all hearts in this place. And so we do have a political season upon us, as many of you may have figured out. We have some important decisions where we get to voice what values matter most to us. And boy, I hope we can find authorization in our text to care for the ones who are systematically forgotten in this exchange. And so thank you for that word. I hope it finds roots in our heart as we consider ourselves and our country and the world that we're building and the way that we live. So now as you gather... Hopefully, increasingly over time, we'll be able to gather in small groups in homes. I woke up this morning thinking about pretty soon we may be able to, say, gather with a couple of friends and do a watch party of our service. We're not going open building live anytime soon. But hopefully, as we move forward, we can gather with a few people and, it, it, you know, we'll see how it, how it all goes. But let's assume you're doing that and let's assume that you have to eat something now. What is it about church that makes us so hungry? We can't wait till it's over. So we can go down to Luby's or whatever it was we used to do as kids. <laughs> but as you gather around those things that sustain you for the work of uh, allowing the seed of the Word of God to bear fruit and, and, and to impact how you are in the world, just know that that is a divine exchange that was 
divinely intended to remind you how near God is to your heart, to your life, to your mind. And so as we prepare ourselves and as we gather in worship for another song, um, just know that Christ is present. Christ is present in those ways.
Thank you all of you for the work of putting this together. This is a joy to us, uh, and it's a joy on weeks when I don't have to do the speaking, um, when the team can carry that load. Uh, So we see you out there. We know you're out there. I had this conversation this week with some friends from Dallas who came down last week and said, please don't stop doing the live stream when we all open back up. And two things occurred to me with that sentence. I'm not sure we're opening back up at the rate we're going. We will eventually, but we won't forget those of you who are gathered around screens around the country who find life in these words. We understand this to be the purpose of this house, which is to name the things that set people free so that you might be free. It's not to build anything in particular other than a community of people gathered around that message, and so we hope to do that well. A couple things. Um, as always, your generosity drives this. Uh, our Most of our expenses continue to be what they always were. Uh, and so our, our, our budget is good. Our finances are strong, but it, it really hangs on your generosity and willingness to believe in this little house. A couple things to keep in mind. Uh, there's a, a pipes and porter with limited capacity coming this Tuesday. If you don't know what that is, you'd have to be in town to know what that is. It's a gathering of men mostly. Uh, and we gather in places to just hang when there's no agenda. It's just to really hang out. Uh, I used to drink porter until I found IPAs, and so we named it Pipes and Porter, and I don't smoke cigars. (laughs) I'm a pipe guy. Anyway, there are a few slots open. Email Trey, T-R-A-Y, at austinnewchurch.com. You're going to want to do that quick because there's something like eight spots available still for that. Um, Also, tonight we are gathering our, uh, our educators and teachers. If you are connected at all to the teaching industry or if you are teacher folk, Gather with us tonight at 7.30. We are not unaware of the pressure you carry, of the impossibility of what's being asked of you in these times. And so we thought, let's add a Zoom to your life of 40 hours a week of Zooming. Doesn't sound brilliant? There's got to be something smart in there somewhere. Here's what we're saying. Pop something fizzy or bubbly or boozy if you must. Gather with us at 7.30 for the world's shortest Zoom. And here's all that we're asking of you. Just show up. We're going to have a guest uh, uh, pop in, my big sister, who is a career teacher. She's a teacher's teacher. 
uh, and she's got big passion around naming how difficult it is right now and just acknowledging that. And so if you're a teacher, please make the time to do that. We may record that. I don't know if we'll make that available in the future. But join us tonight. We've got 25 teachers signed up already for that. Hopefully, we can, we can speak some words of affirmation over you. There will be literally nothing required of you. So just so you know that. Okay, for our benediction today, um, Juan Leva from our ANC Creatives is going to read the poem that really gave birth to this fall series. Uh, Esha and Sam reminded me, th- me this week of a poem. I can't remember what, what it's called. Sam, shout it to me. Give us a king, she says. Um, It's the poem that kind of got our creative thoughts going in the direction of 1 Samuel, specifically uh, wrapping around our uh, community in times of political sort of high-stakes craziness, which we are in. And so Juan is going to read that, and that will be our benediction for today. It's by Deanne Zanzing. Zanzing. Come on. Don't fool yourself. Despite potential for wealth, titles, and other securities, we humans are fragile clay jars. Consider Israel's great turn, the anxious clutch of the common wheel through crown and monarchy. Crying out for a king is not merely poor seeing. It's not even closed eyes. It's like forgetting one has eyes at all. This earth is everyone's home. All the great mystics and spiritual teachers have wagered their lives on this. Prayer is awareness of one's world. Prayer is awareness of something or someone else in one's world. Prayer is awareness it isn't one's world at all. Prayer is awareness that there is only one world, and this one world is everyone's home. And in the streets, I can still hear cries for a king, for someone to guarantee security, for someone to take away our fear. We want to be like the nations. Dear world, don't run from the claws of one animal into the snare of another as though you have no eyes. Corrupt kings will make you forget what corrupt local leaders remind you. This earth is your health. And in the end, it is an illusion to believe you can own it divide it or reshape it. And though my ears are ringing and I'm getting a headache from the patriarchal babble, my spirit resonates with those jazz blues, drum beats, heartbeats, cries of all the colored bodies, beauty of all the unity this universe has to offer. All we need is gifted all around us. All the great mystics, spiritual teachers, dancing sisters, and drumming kokums have wagered their lives on this bathed in prayer and sacred water, don't feed the desire for security. Expose its false foundation. Transform it to unity. We all have eyes. Open yours to the gift of grace in the whole of the universe. We're drowning in the grace of interconnectedness while living like we have no eyes to see it. The unity of the world offers itself to each of us. Sisters sisters and brothers, No matter your pain, the things you have endured or inflicted, the dehumanization you have suffered or caused, the fear and insecurity you have felt, the scars on land and body, you are never beyond being moved by the Spirit. True power is knowing this for oneself 
and awakening to all of the world in this light. This earth is everyone's home. Don't fool yourself. Amen.